Section 16 of The Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter 14, which is too full of varied matter to be briefly described. Part 1. Meanwhile, let us fly through space with greater than railway speed, and overtake the Flying Dutchman. It has got up a full speed by this time, about one mile a minute, sixty miles an hour. Sometimes it goes a little faster, sometimes a little slower, according to the nature of the ground, for a railway is by no means a level way, the ascents and descents being occasionally very steep. Those who travel in the carriages form but a faint conception of the pace. To realize it to the full, you must stand on the engine with John Merritt and Will Garvey. Houses, fields, trees, cattle, human beings go by in wild confusion. They appear only to vanish. Wind is not felt in the carriages. On the lightning you are in a gale. It reminds one of a storm at sea. The noise, too, is terrific. We once had the good fortune to ride on the engine of the Flying Dutchman, and on that occasion had resolved to converse with the driver and tried it. As well might we have tried to converse amid the rattling of ten thousand tin kettles. John Merritt put his mouth to our ear and roared. We heard him faintly. We tried to shout to him. He shook his head, put his hand to his ear, and his ear to our mouth. Does it not injure your hearing? No, sir, not at all. It's worst on our legs we subsided into silence and wonderment we had also resolved to take notes and tried it egyptian hieroglyphics were not more comprehensible than the notes we took we made a discovery however near the end of the journey namely that by bending the knees and keeping so writing became much more possible or much less impossible we learnt this from john who had to fill up in pencil a sort of statement or report ticket on the engine. It was interesting and curious to note the fact that of the sentences thus written, one word was penciled in the grounds of the Earl of Etterline, the next opposite the mansion of Lord Soberly, the third in the midst of Langley Moor, the fourth while crashing through the village of Everby, and a full stop was added at the mouth of the great ghostly tunnel. Think of that, ye teachers of penmanship in twelve lessons, and hide your diminished heads. John Merritt's engine, of which we have said much, and of which we mean to say still more, was not only a stupendous, but a complex creation. Its body consisted of above 4,500 pieces, all of which were almost as delicately fastened and put together with as much care as watchwork. It was a confirmed teetotaler, too. The morning draft which John had given it before starting, to enable it to run its 77 miles, was 800 gallons of cold water. He also gave it a good feed to begin with, and laid in for its sustenance on the trip one ton of coals. Its power to act vigorously may be gathered from the fact that one morning, some years before, John had got the fire up with unwanted rapidity, and no sooner had the minimum of steam necessary to move it been created than it quickly advanced and passed out of its shed through a brick wall fourteen inches thick with as much ease as it would have gone through a sheet of brown paper. This being its power when starting at what we may regard as a quiet walk, some conception may be formed of its capacity when flying down an incline at sixty-five miles an hour with a heavy train of carriages at its back. 
In such circumstances it would go through an ordinary house, train it all, as a rifle bullet would go through a cheese. It was an eight-wheel engine, and the driving wheels were eight feet in diameter. The cylinder was eighteen inches, with a piston of two feet stroke, and the total weight of engine and tender was fifty-three tons. The cost of this iron horse with its tender was about three thousand pounds. Having fairly started, John took his stand opposite his circular window in the protecting screen or weatherboard, and kept a sharp lookout ahead. Will Garvey kept an eye chiefly on the rear to note that all was well in that direction, and much cause there was for caution. To rush through space at such a rate, even on a straight line in a clear weather, was trying enough, but when it is remembered that the day was wet, and that their course lay through sundry deep cuttings and tunnels, and round several curves where it was not possible to foresee obstruction, the necessity for caution will be more apparent. All went well, however, as usual. After clearing the first thirty-six miles, John Merritt consulted his watch, and observed to Will that they had done it in thirty-eight and a half minutes. He then put on a spurt, and went for some time at a higher rate of speed. Observing that something at the head of the engine required looking at, Will Garvey went out along the side of it, and while doing this piece of work his hair and jacket were blown straight back by the breeze which the engine had created for itself. He resembled, in fact, a sailor going out to work on the sails in a stiff breeze. This artificial breeze, sweeping round the sides of the screen, caused an eddy which sent up a cloud of coal dust, but neither John nor his mate appeared to care for this. Their eyes were evidently coal-proof. Presently they approached a canal over which they rushed, and, for one moment, glanced down on the antipodal mode of locomotion, a boat going three miles an hour with its steersman half asleep and smoking at the helm. Next moment they were passing under a bridge, the next over a town, and then rushed through a station, and it was interesting to note, as they did so, that the people on the platform shrank back and looked half terrified, although they were in no danger whatever, while those in the train, who might at any moment have been hurled into eternity, looked calm and serene, evidently untroubled by thoughts of danger. So difficult is it for man to realize his true condition on such circumstances. Just beyond the station, a dog was observed to have strayed on the line, and ran barking before the engine. It was overtaken and passed in a few seconds, and Will looked over the side, but saw nothing of it. As no yell was heard, it is probable that the poor thing escaped. Soon after that, two navvies were observed walking coolly and slowly on the line in front of the engine. John frowned and laid his hand on the whistle, but before it could sound, the reckless men had heard the train, looked round with horrified faces, sprang like jumping-jacks off the line, right and left, and were gone. Soon after this, on approaching the distant signal of one of the stations, they observed that the arms were extended, indicating that the line was blocked, that is, that another train being in advance, they must check speed, or perhaps stop. This was a species of insult to the flying Dutchman, whose way ought to have been kept perfectly clear, for even a check of speed would inevitably cost the loss of several minutes. With an indignant grumble, John Merritt cut off steam, but immediately the signals were lowered, and he was allowed to go on. Again, in a few moments, another signal checked him. "'They've let a train on before us,' growled John sternly and perhaps we may be checked all the way to London. But someone shall hear of this, and have to account for it. John was wrong to some extent. While he yet spoke, the signal to go on was given, and a few minutes later the flying Dutchman flashed past the obstructing train, which had been shunted onto a siding, and from its window hundreds of passengers were gazing at the express, which passed them like a meteor. Perhaps they were congratulating themselves, as well they might, for... 
but for the block system, their danger would have been tremendous, almost equal to that of a man endeavoring to run away from a cannon shot. This may be somewhat better understood when we explain that the Flying Dutchman could not have stopped in a shorter space than a mile and a half. At length the iron horse came suddenly on an obstruction which filled its driver with deep anxiety and alarm. Daily had John driven that train, but never before had he met with a similar danger. At a level crossing, less than a mile in advance of him, he observed a horse and a loaded cart standing right across the line. Either the horse was a runaway, or the driver had left it for a little, and it had strayed. Whatever the cause of its being there, John's alert mind saw at once that a collision was inevitable. He shut off steam and was about to whistle for the guard to apply the brakes, while Jim Garvey, who also saw the danger, was already turning on the brakes of the tender. John reflected that it would be impossible to come to a stand within the space that lay between him and the cart, and that a partial concussion would be almost certain to throw his engine off the rails. Less than a minute remained to him. "'Let her go, mate!' he shouted quickly. Will Garvey obeyed at once. John put on full steam. The Flying Dutchman leaped forward with increased velocity. There followed a slight shock, and, next moment, the cart and horse were smashed to atoms, all but annihilated. It was a great risk that had been run, but of two evils John Merritt had chosen the less, and came off in triumph with only slight damage to his buffers. Let us now quit the engine for a while, and retracing our steps in regard to time, visit some of the carriages behind it. When the late passenger recovered her breath and equanimity, and found herself fairly on her journey, she unfolded her bundle of shawls, and disclosed a fat, glossy lapdog, which seemed to enjoy its return to fresh air and daylight, and acknowledged, with sundry wags of its tail and blinks of its eyes, the complimentary assurance that it was the dearest, sweetest, prettiest little darling that ever was born, and that it wouldn't be allowed to pay a nasty fare to a mean railway company that let all kinds of ugly parrots and cats and babies travel free. The timid little lady, the only other occupant of the carriage, ventured to suggest that the dog travelling free was against the rules of the company. "'I am quite aware of that,' said the late passenger somewhat sharply. "'But if people choose to make unjust and oppressive rules, I don't mean to submit to them. Just think of a parrot, a horrid, shrieking creature that everyone acknowledges to be a nuisance, being allowed to travel free. Or a baby, which is enough to drive one distracted when it squalls.' as it always does in a railway carriage, while my sweet little pet that annoys nobody must be paid for, forsooth. It does indeed seem unreasonable, responded the timid little old lady, but don't you think that the company has a perfect right to make whatever rules it pleases, and that we are bound to obey them when we make use of their line? No, I don't, said the late passenger tartly. The timid little lady thought it advisable to change the subject, and did so by remarking that the dog was a very pretty creature, upon which the late passenger thawed at once, admitting that it was a very pretty creature, and asserted in addition that it was a perfect darling. Their conversation became miscellaneous and general after this point, and not worth reporting. Therefore we shall get out at the window, and pass along the footboards to the carriage occupied by Mrs. Derby and her friends. Immediately after the train had started, as before described, Captain Lee entered into an animated conversation with the nurse as to the health of the Tipps family. Edwin, who was much interested in them, listened, and put in a word now and then, but neither he nor the captain, after the first glance, paid any attention to the other occupants of the carriage. 
Meanwhile, Thompson, Jenkins, and company spent a short time in taking a quiet observation of the state of affairs. The former had placed himself opposite to Edwin, and eyed him over critically as a wrestler might eye his opponent. Jenkins had seated himself opposite the captain, who had been apportioned to him in the coming conflict. And Smith, who, although a stout enough fellow, was the smallest of the three, kept his eye on the coveted bag, and held himself in readiness to act as might be advisable. The scoundrels were not long in taking action. As soon as they were quite clear of the suburbs of Clatterby, Jenkins suddenly hit Captain Lee a tremendous blow on the head, which was meant to fell him at once. But the captain's head was harder than he had expected it to be. He instantly grappled with Jenkins. Edwin's amazement did not prevent his prompt action, but at the moment he sprang to the rescue, he received a blow from Thompson, who leaped on him, and seized him by the throat with a vice-like grip. At the same moment, Smith also sprang upon him. Thompson soon found that he had miscalculated young Gerwood's strength. Strong though his grasp was, Edwin's was stronger. Almost as quick as thought, he threw his left arm round Thompson's waist, grasped his hair with his right hand, and almost broke his back. There is no question that he would have overcome him in a few seconds if Smith had not hampered him. As it was, he disengaged his right arm for a moment, and, hitting a familiar and oft-tried blow straight out from the shoulder, planted his knuckles just above the bridge of Smith's nose. He fell as if he had been shot. But the momentary relief thus afforded to Thompson enabled the scoundrel to get into a better position for continuing the struggle. Meanwhile, Jenkins, although bravely and stoutly opposed by the veteran Lee, quickly rendered his adversary insensible, and at once sprang upon Edwin, and turned the scale in favor of his comrade, who, at the moment, was struggling in the youth's grasp with savage though unavailing ferocity. At the same time, Smith, who had only been stunned, recovered, and seizing Edwin by the legs, endeavored to throw him down, so that it went hard with our young hero after that, despite his activity, strength, and courage. During this scene, which was enacted in a very few minutes, poor Mrs. Derby sat drawn up into the remotest corner of the carriage, her face transfixed with horror, and a terrific yell bursting occasionally from her white lips. But neither the sound of her cries nor the noise of the deadly struggle could overtop the clatter of the express train. Those in the next compartment did indeed hear a little of it, but they were powerless to render assistance, and there was at that time no means of communicating with the guard or driver. Poor Edwin thought of Captain Lee, who lay bleeding on the floor, and of Emma, and the power of thought was so potential that in his great wrath he almost lifted the three men in the air, but they clung to him like leeches, and it is certain that they would have finally overcome him had he not, in one of his frantic struggles, thrust his foot below one of the seats and kicked the still slumbering Sam Natalie on the nose. That overwrought but erring porter immediately awoke to the consciousness of being oppressed with a sense of guilt, and of being in a very strange and awkward position. Quickly perceiving, however, by the wild motion of the feet and the occasioned scream from Mrs. Derby that something serious was going on, he peeped out, saw at a glance how matters stood, got to his feet in a moment, and dealt Jenkins such a blow on the back of the head that he dropped like a stone. To deal Smith two similar blows, with like result, was the work of two seconds. Thus freed, Edwin rose like a giant, crushed Thompson down into a seat, and twisted his neckcloth until his eyes began to glaze and his lips to turn blue. Sam Natley was a man of cool self-possession. Seeing that Edwin was more than a match for his adversary, he left him and proceeded to attend to the captain, who showed symptoms of revival. But happening to glance again at Edwin, and observing the condition of Thompson, Sam turned and put his hand on the youth's arm. "'I think, sir,' he said quietly, "'it would be as well to leave enough of him to be hanged.' 
Besides, it might be rather awkward, sir, to do Jack Ketch's duty without the benefit of judge, jury, witnesses, or clergy. Edwin released his hold at once, and Thompson raised himself in the seat, clenching his teeth and fists as he did so. He was one of those savage creatures who, when roused, appeared to go mad, and become utterly regardless of consequences. While Sam was engaged in extemporizing handcuffs for Jenkins and Smith out of a necktie and a pocket handkerchief, Thompson sat perfectly still, but breathed very hard. He was only resting a little to recover strength, for in a moment, without a sound or warning of any kind, he hit Edwin with all his force on the temple. Fortunately, the youth saw the blow coming in time to partially give way to it, and in another moment the struggle was renewed, but terminated almost as quickly, for Edwin gave Thompson a blow that stunned him, and kept him quiet for the next quarter of an hour. During this period, Edwin examined Captain Lee's hurts, which turned out to be less severe than might have been expected. He also assisted Sam to secure Thompson's wrist with a handkerchief, and then devoted some time to soothing the agitated spirits of poor Mrs. Derby, whose luckless shins had not escaped quite scathless during the melee. "'Oh, sir,' sobbed Mrs. Derby, glancing with horror at the disheveled and blood-stained prisoners, "'I always thought railways were bad things, but I never, no, I never imagined they was as bad as this.' "'But, my good woman,' said Edwin, unable to restrain a smile. Railways are not all, nor always, as bad as this. We very seldom hear of such a villainous deed as has been attempted to-day, thanks to the energy and efficiency of their police establishments. Quite true, Gerwood, quite true, said Captain Lee, glancing sternly at the prisoners, and staunching a cut in his forehead with a handkerchief as he spoke. Our police arrangements are improving daily, as scoundrels shall find to their cost. Jenkins and Smith did not raise their eyes, and Thompson continued to frown steadily out at the window without moving a muscle. "'I'm sure I don't know nothing about your police, and what's more, I don't care,' said Mrs. Derby. "'All that I know is that railways is dreadful things, and if I was the Queen, which I'm not, I'd have them all put down by Acts of Parliament, so I would, but never.' Never, never, as long as I'm able to manage my own... Ah! Mrs. Derby terminated here with one of her own appalling shrieks, for it was at this precise moment that John Merritt happened, as already described, to have occasion to knock a cart and horse to Adams. The shock, as we have said, was very slight. Nevertheless, it was sufficient to overturn the poor nurse's nervous system, which had already been wrought up to a high pitch of tension. "'That's something gone, sir,' said Sam, touching his cap to Captain Lee. "'What is it, Edwin?' inquired the captain as the youth let down the window and looked out. "'I can see nothing,' said Edwin, "'except that the guard and fireman are both looking back "'as if they wanted to see something on the line. "'We are beginning to slow, however, being not far from the station now.'" End of Section 16 Recording by Todd